Hey, all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon-to-be-announced store. Your donations will also be tax-deductible as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now on with the show. A sense that was maybe ahead of her time in some ways of wanting, really wanting to let all she wanted to bring was Jesus. Mm-hmm. She really wanted to let the Wairani make their own decisions about everything else related to contact. How much more contact with the outside world did they want? Um, what kinds of changes did they want to make? You know, she would have liked to see, I think, maybe less cultural change than there was personally, but she mm-hmm. felt like that was not her her call yeah. to make. That was their call to make. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic reform Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss the newest and best books in the broader Christian tradition with some of the most respected seminary and college professors, pastors, theologians, authors, and more. We hope these book club episodes introduce solid theological works to those who want to read but don't know where to start or who to trust. You'll be introduced to authors you know and many others you don't from various theological traditions, but all under the broader tent of our shared creedal tradition. All of these authors and books help us to do the same thing. They remind us of how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And we're on a book club episode. Our guest today is Lucy Austin. She wrote the uh, recent book on Elizabeth Elliot. It's called Elizabeth Elliot, A Life. So she's going to be introducing us to this fantastic woman for Christianity. And, um, and she's going to, uh, explain if you guys don't know who, she, who Elizabeth Elliot is, you're going to learn a lot about who that is and, and a little bit more about, uh, this book. So it's published by Crossway in our show notes. You'll see that link for Crossway, click that link and get this book for yourself for sure. And then there's just other basic information about how to find us and, and subscribe to us on YouTube uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, email, that kind of stuff. And um, so we definitely want to jump into this episode here really soon. But as always, we want to remind you guys, if you need to find a church to call home and and uh, are not a member at one right now, 
there is a local church finder as well on our show notes. So I'll let Peter further introduce our guest today, Lucy Austin. Yeah, it's my pleasure to introduce to our audience uh, Lucy Austin, who's a writer, editor, and teacher who has spent over a decade studying source materials on Elizabeth Elliot. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more because I, I kind of sneaked some of her profiles and researched her a little bit before this. She has served on the editorial staff of the Spring Hill Review, contributed to various publications, and developed two high school English textbooks on prominent Christian authors. S.R. Austin lives in the beautiful Pacific Northwest with her husband and children. It's a pleasure having you on our show. Ms. Austin. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. This will be this will be really fun. So I, like I said, um, I, we, we always have kind of an icebreaker question that I don't send to the author or the person we're having on. So I snooped your Facebook profile before <laughs> before this, and I saw. So I've got two cats. I want to know your your little bit about about your cats. You have you have either one or two or some amount of cats. I wasn't sure, but what are your, what are your cats' names? So we have two cats. Um, they're brothers. They're named Leo and Lambert. Okay. And they are um, orange tabbies, a short hair and a long huh. hair. So. If somebody's on YouTube, you can see my orange tabby. Right oh. <laughs> So when I saw that, I was like, well, that reminds me of my cat. Yeah. So, Lucy, we have some connections, and I was thinking <laughs> I was we're just going to have one. When she uh, named her cat, I was like, oh, this is funny. Yeah. So uh, I lived in Seattle for a long time, so I know the UW area very well. My wife is alum alum there. But also, you named your cat after my firstborn son, Leo. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, well, that's funny. I have to tell you that... Um, you know, Lucy has become more popular for names again with the, you know, the under 10 crowd now. But when I was growing up, the only people, the only things named Lucy were usually little late old ladies poodles. Yep. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. yep. so totally. I can sympathize. <laughs> you know, you know, uh, Leo is a great name for a cat, actually, because it's Latin for lion. Yeah, and that's true. And, yeah, and Leo, my son, has kind of reddish hair, and you said oh, your cat has red hair, so it's yeah. it's just it's a it's kind of a nice yeah. match. That's <laughs> are they actual like litter mate brothers, or are they like yes. just okay? Yes. Nice. Yeah, there you go. I was, we call our cats brothers, but they're not from the same litter mate. Oh, okay, yeah. But cool, yeah. So beyond your cats or beyond your writing, uh, let our listeners know uh, two things: a little bit more about yourself, and then if you can draw that into how you. How you came to write on and about Elizabeth Elliot? Yeah, okay. Um, so yeah, I live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, and um, my family has we have a little menagerie. We have the cats, and then we have um, goats, ducks, chickens, um, and we have a little orchard that we're always trying to keep the deer out of. Hmm. Um, and that's that's kind of what I do when I'm not reading and writing. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, reading and writing has always been kind of my favorite thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I was an English major in college. Um, and then I ended up working for a homeschool resource company, which provided um, curriculum, uh, standardized testing, and then um, the correspondence uh, courses for kind of support for parents as students got into the older grades. Hmm. And so I did um, high school English uh correspondence kind of teaching and uh and then I got when they started developing a um a new literature and composition um textbook series I was involved in that um 
And so that was actually what ultimately led to this project because um, the books all featured eight different authors and the students would read a mini bio of the author and then they would read a work by that author and then a lesson based on that work. Um, and what I would do at the time was kind of check out all the biographies of that person from the library. Um, and then from my notes based on all those different books, I would write my little mini bio. And when I went to do that for Elizabeth Elliot, um, I discovered that there were no full-length biographies for adults in mm. existence. Um, there were none. And um, and so I to write my little mini bio, I had to um, to kind of go straight to source material for my research. And I was really intrigued by what I found about her. Um, mm. And so that kind of this project kind of came about from that intersection of my interest and then the gap um in the the material and scholarship hmm. so. yeah that's interesting we'll, we'll talk about it more but i mean there's been stuff written on jim but that might yeah that's I, yeah like you said there i couldn't think of anything else that was written on elizabeth we'll talk about jim um and elizabeth uh and that's that's brings me to to this question because the the uh the vast majority of those who know elizabeth and, and maybe we're thinking slightly on the older crowd at least older than us um, know her because of her first husband, uh, who was martyred in 1956, um, January 5th, 6th, one of those one of those few first days, uh, during an attempt to engage with the uh, Huwani, I hope I'm saying that right, tribe. Um, I should have looked that up. <laughs> uh, little little is known about Elliot besides this, Elizabeth, um, kind of on the popular level. How, how, however, uh, you spend the first chunk of your book describing her upbringing, uh, that takes maybe half the book up until after Jim, especially so the faith context that she grew up in. Um, so yeah, her her family was she was associated with the explosive growth of uh, if this is a term some of our audience knows fundamentalist dispensationalism um, of the twenties and thirties. Uh, her grandpa, if I have this right, was the editor of a widely distributed newspaper on Christianity and culture, the Sunday School Times. Mm -hmm. um how how did this how did her upbringing so kind of all this stuff how did her upbringing um the stuff that's not known about elizabeth um shape her and her view of the world and god well so the sunday school times was actually purchased originally by her great grandfather great grandfather okay i knew uh, yeah. i knew the grandfather of some sort yeah yeah and then her grandfather and her great uncle uh kind of took it over and were the publisher and the editor and then her father became the assistant editor and then the editor um, so that was kind of her, that was her family background for several generations. And that was a, a non-denominational, yep. um, and at their heyday, you know, their circulation was like 150,000. So oh, it was huge. Yeah. Substantial, um, you know, they supplied churches all across the country. Um, mm. and so they, they, they had to be, you know, non-denominational to, mm. to be able to serve that large yep. readership. Um, and, and her dad, Philip Howard, that was a, very much a conviction for him. He would talk to his kids about the strengths of different denominations and mm -hmm. encourage them to view that, um, to, to view those denominations very much as, you know, siblings under one umbrella, mm -hmm. um, not in conflict with each other. And um, so that was an influence for her. Um, and and they, they attended, so her parents were, um, were missionaries uh, before she was born with the non-denominational Belgian gospel mission. 
Mm -hmm. um, and then they moved back to the U.S. when he took over the assistant editorship at the Sunday School Times. Um, but they attended um, several different denominational churches over the years, just based on where they felt they had the best Bible teaching. Yep. So um, Episcopalian, um, Baptist, Methodist, um, Bible Protestant, I think I'm missing one, but several different. Um, so that was kind of always the emphasis in their family. And then the the kind of overriding or undergirding um, thing theologically was the holiness movement or the mm -hmm. Keswick movement, the victorious life. Um, and, and you can really see that come out in her her letters, her yeah. drills, her, her her early published writing. Um, you know, you can see the emphasis in um, a, a very personal um, inner individual relationship with God, um, uh, a very high standard for holiness in conduct and not just, you know, external holiness, but but internal conversion. Yeah. So the whole person was involved in holiness. Um, Strong emphasis on obedience, no matter the cost, um, dying mm -hmm. to sin and self, uh, participation in Christ's death, those kinds of things um, really strongly shaped her. Yeah. So before before next question to maybe adding on to this, um, and this is this is kind of profiled throughout, and some of her friends noticed this, but like maybe what was what was Elizabeth like to be around when she was a young girl, and I mean like kind of throughout her adult life too. Um, I think it, it depended on the, the situation, you know, that she found herself in. Um, she could come across as very intense. Yeah. Um, you know, she was she was often, especially, you know, once she got about probably halfway through college, um, as she started to really feel like it was time to kind of set aside um, childish things and focus <laughs> yeah. on God's will for her life. Yeah. Um you know, she could be, she could be pretty intense. Um, and, and I think she could be off putting to people because of that intensity. Um, but, you know, she also had, um, a really strong sense of humor and when oh, yeah. she was, you know, with her family, um, you know, her, she had five siblings, um, they were very close all their lives and, um, and they would just, cry laughing mm -hmm. together um you know she was she could do a whole stand-up comedy routines from memory mm -hmm. and um she she could be really very funny so yeah yeah no it's cool to see both of these not intentions so much but like really depending on the the, the people that she was with um mm -hmm. really opening herself up or and not so much closing herself up but she, she like rightfully so she just held conviction so strongly that sometimes when people interacted with her, she wasn't trying to be mean at all. She was just like, yeah, this is what I believe. Like, like take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so getting into a little bit more of the depths of the story uh, about her life, which is really, man, it's, if you guys really soak in her life and understand it, read um, Lucy's book about this and, watch YouTube clips, it'll bring you to tears her story because she has such a Christ-like response to pain and suffering and such wisdom, which is like once in a generation. Um, I almost kind of was watching this. I don't know if anyone's ever 
uh, said this before. She almost seemed like a Protestant mother Teresa to me. <laughs> she just um, sticks out so much, but the story about her first husband's martyrdom, which just means he uh, died representing the gospel <clears throat> It's just the beginning of the story, really. You would think you hear that and it's like, wow, that's a painful story. And that's just where it ends. But no, that's the beginning of all this. So let's go into that a little bit. The uh, martyrdom of her husband. Um, if a lot of you guys don't know what happened, uh, you can recap that. Her husband, Jim, her first husband, um, on a missionary trip with, with a handful of other people to spread the gospel to a tribe, a remote tribe in Ecuador. Um Please uh, describe what happened and why Why was there so much attention situated on Elizabeth right after what happened to her husband? And how did she respond, um, especially as, you know, right after that happened? Because she does talk about in her lectures um, how we all face suffering. It's about, as a Christian, we just, it's about how you respond and responding even in gratitude. And so based on just what happened to Jim's martyrdom, her response uh, to that, if you can just uh, speak to that, to the audience. Oh, excuse me. Um, as far as focus on her, um, I think a couple of things happened. And one was, um, so, so there were five men killed, Jim Elliott, mm -hmm. Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Nate Saint, and Roger Udarian. And, um, and there was a tremendous amount of international focus on what had happened. So the men were announced missing on the radio um, and that, that news went across the country um, and you know, big newspapers were reporting on it. And um, you know, Life Magazine flew a photographer in to document the search for them. Um, and at that point, Life Magazine's circulation was so great that like 75% of oh, yeah. Americans were reading anything that came across in Life Magazine. So the whole country knew about it. Mm -hmm. And um, and and there was a great interest. Um, I mean, it was, it was the cusp of the space age, the space race. You know, Sputnik was less than two years away. And um, here were these men who were modern Americans who were killed by warriors with spears. Uh, and that juxtaposition, I think, kind of caught people's attention. Hmm. And then um, as various news agencies reported on the story and more became known, a lot of times it was kind of framed as a, a modern pioneer um, adventure story. And hmm. that really, that was kind of a, a popular ethos at the time, hmm. not just in the U.S., where we kind of frame our national story that way, but again, internationally. And so there was this tremendous interest. And um, so the missionaries were approached by a, a big name publisher, Harper and Brothers at that time, they're Harper Collins now, yeah. I think. But yeah. um, so they were approached by Harper's and, um, you know, this was just an economic proposition for the publisher. Uh, you know, here's this story and we mm -hmm. want to you tell it. And we'll yeah, all we can tell a lot of copies based off this story. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the um, there was a missionary who was involved with a radio mission radio station in Ecuador who agreed to write the book um, and, and did the contract with Harper's. And then as time went by, it, it became apparent that he wasn't going to be able actually to write the book. And at that point, um, Harper's was, you know, a few weeks from uh, their deadline, 
and um, and Elizabeth Elliot had already been um, working on writing her husband Jim's biography. Um, and so she kind of had been thinking about his story already, and she had some she had some materials that they had seen, and they'd been impressed by her, and they asked her to take over the contract and write the book. Um, and she agreed, and she had about eight weeks in which to to write this story to meet the deadline. And um, and she because she had been so immersed in Jim's story, it was very natural to frame the book in his story. So it's a multi-biography. She tells the story of all five of the men who were killed, but the opening scene is Jim. The closing words of the book are Jim. And, and so I think that contributed to kind of tipping the focus <clears throat> from all five families, specifically toward the Elliots. And then, and I think you kind of touched on this in your question, but um, of the five women who were widowed, she was the one who had um, some linguistic training mm -hmm. in um, in reducing an oral language to writing. And she was the one who was on the scene when two Weirani women uh, came out and initiated contact themselves a couple of years later. Oh, and yeah. so she was the one who had the, the tools and the contacts to end up going in to live with the, um, the people group. And... Um, and, and then, you know, Harper's wanted a book about that. And so mm -hmm. the story went on after the men's death. Uh, and obviously the, the men weren't involved with it anymore. And, and she was. And so I think that that really contributed to the focus shifting, you know, from all five to the Elliot's and then from the Elliot's to Elizabeth. Um, and, and of course, then she kept writing books after that, and that kind of kept her name in the public view. Hmm. So um, what was the second half of your question? There was more to it than that. Well, I'll add to this a little bit, um, or just kind of um, direct the question, because I, again, towards the beginning, or when you profile the, the martyrdom, uh, and the way that Elizabeth reacts to it, um, yes. or like kind of doesn't react to it, because like her, her friends and those who know her is like, well, why aren't you... Why, like why aren't you kind of like emotionally in turmoil because of this right. uh, and like there's also why asking before kind of her upbringing and her faith and um kind of the expectations around holiness and, and keeping yourself mm -hmm. together like how, how did that play in how she responded to to jim's death yeah so you can definitely see the holiness influence i mean i think she really worked hard in the aftermath of his death to kind of live up to the the slogan that was popular at the time in holiness circles, which was not just somehow, but triumphantly. Oh yeah. Um, and she just, you know, she worked very, very hard to, to focus on, you know, the joy that Jim was experiencing in heaven and mm -hmm. blessings that they had had in their life together. And, um, and not to, not to dwell in her grief, almost not to pay attention to her yeah. grief. Um, and uh, and she felt that the Lord helped her and supported her during that time and enabled her, um, you know, to to keep going. I think it's pretty apparent that shock also played a role in yeah. that kind of initial buoying up, um, and then 
um, as the first anniversary of his death passed. Um, and, you know, she started the second year without him. The bottom kind of fell out um, of that. And things were very, very hard for her for a very long time. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, but she just kept doing what she knew to do, which was, uh, you know, she would pray the Psalms. She would sing hymns to um, redirect her focus um, from herself to the Lord. Uh, and she definitely, um, you know, she, she took her grief to the Lord. Um, yeah. So. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face -face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to an admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Totally, yeah. And I, I was yeah. it, like, like Nick was saying, it, it can, and she was rightfully bringing us Lord, but sometimes it can seem like, well, are you, like, are you really actually going through the grief that your husband just died? That you're what twenty? She's in her mid twenties, the husband of, yeah. of about three years that she'd known for eight or nine years in total. Um, yeah. and their courtship and their dating and all that stuff and their correspondences. And then all of a sudden to like, well, it's like, it's in the Lord's hands. What's like, we, I would totally understand. Like, let's like, you want to make sure that you're, you're glorifying the Lord, but it's also, I think it's, there's some, there's something like where she can't feel some of these things that it's not like, it's not holy enough. Yes. I agree. <clears throat> yeah. Her, her understanding of gratitude is, is just so great and comes through with her response to all this stuff too. And just keeping her focus on Christ because <clears throat> going to that tribe that killed her husband, um, she went there in a posture of, you know, in a sort of picking up where he left off and, and, and spreading the gospel to them and knowing there's a huge risk that she could get killed too. And she's bringing her what three-year-old daughter with her. And I mean, some people would be like, oh, what are you thinking? That's crazy. But she a lot just of people were like, what are you thinking? That yeah, they, yeah, they, <laughs> they actually said they told her, yeah, they yeah. were, they would, they spared no words for what she was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's just, you think about scriptures, like what the, the world seems 
would call you foolish. You know, yeah. this is doing something for, for God. And I mean, you see, you see God's providence with all this. Like you're even telling the story about that, the, the person in Ecuador that was supposed to write the story and didn't. So she ended up kind of picking up that and that kind of nudged her into also going on this uh, mission and, and just the providence through that. And, and knowing like Genesis 50, 20 says what men meant for evil, God meant for good. Obviously her husband being killed in the martyr martyrdom of the other missionaries he was with was an evil act, but you could see through what she did and the outpouring of that and how that changed the tribe's outlook and being introduced to the gospel was good and is amazing. Like, so that story of it's just a story of forgiveness. Um, so going into this question, focusing more about how, uh, this affected her and her faith, um, her work in Latin America, going there, picking up where her husband left off, um, right after he was killed and, um, you know, befriending really the people that killed her husband. Um, can you talk about how that started to shape and change her and the trajectory of the rest of her career? Um, yeah. So, um, I think, well, I mean, we've talked already about kind of how, how her first year, um, of, of lost went and then, um, as so as she went into that second year um and and grief got you know not that it wasn't hard the first year but got even harder um there were several other things that were kind of going on concurrently one was that she and the life magazine photographer who had come to document the search for the men um had struck up a friendship Mm -hmm. um, and he traveled you know all over the world for his job and when he was in ecuador he would visit um, he he reported on her and the other widows again, um, you know, a year later, and um, and and he was um, non-religious, and he would he was always trying to understand where she was coming from and why the men had done what they did, and you know what her faith was, and so on, and um, and she really found that that when she tried to talk to him in church, the church language that she had grown up with, he didn't understand what she was talking about. Not because he wasn't a brilliant man, but because uh, it was a very specialized vocabulary. Yeah. That he didn't and she recognized that, like, well, maybe I shouldn't be speaking other Christianese to this guy because he doesn't know yeah. what I'm saying. And but but having to try to turn Christianese into ideas that everybody would understand really caused her to start thinking critically about what it was she did believe. Um, and her, her relationship with her publisher um, contributed to that. And, um, and then when she started actually living with uh, indigenous people um, first, you know, she had, she had lived kind of among indigenous people a good deal of her time there, but she moved into first a Quechua home with a Quechua family and then later, uh, you know, went and lived with the Wairani, and um, and that really was a paradigm shift for her, and caused her to start thinking really deeply about what was American culture, what mm -hmm. was evangelical culture, what the 
scriptures really said. Um, and so all of those things, I mean, I think her grief opened a door, but all of those things kind of contributed to a shift in her thinking and, um, and then her efforts on the mission field kept not panning out. Yeah, they didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Um, they kept failing to live up to what she had always been taught growing yeah. up, you know, the mission field looked like. And it's how like the most worked. glorious vocation you could possibly have at that time. And she's like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And so Jim had died. And then, you know, after two long years of, of waiting and hard work, there it looked like there was this opportunity to go in and share the gospel with the people who had he had died for and and that had kind of the bottom had kind of fallen out of that a couple of years later and she had never really gotten to do anything that looked to her very much like mission work there and um and she had you know over the course of her 11 years in ecuador she had um worked in three separate languages Mm -hmm. um and and all of them had kind of hit a brick wall and nobody was using the materials she had worked so hard to put together and so um uh you know everything she touched kind of seemed like it just petered out yeah and and so all of that i think contributed to kind of her changing view um and and her coming to see things as a lot less clear and cut and dried and black and white than she had started out thinking that they were. So. Yeah, because ten years before this, when she's at Wheaton, um, I mean that's that's what they were talking about in chapel services. That's what we're talking about in classes. Like this is what Jim wanted to do. She wanted to find somebody who's going to be a missionary, and it's like this is this is the Lord's work. This is what we're going to do. And she was rightfully excited about missions work, as as if anybody's called, you should be. Um, but I, she had some like kind of glorified vision of what mission work was going to be not like kumbaya with everybody, but like, Hey, it's going to be not quick and easy, but like, we'll put the work in and the Lord will kind of open the harvest. Yeah. Um, like maybe kind of adding on to that last, like, how does she start viewing missions work after this? Not so much as like, Hey, don't do it. But like, this is like, she would go to conferences later on and says, this is maybe not what you think it's going to be and she would lose contracts and all that stuff based off of how she talked about mission work after this. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, she didn't, she didn't eschew the idea of foreign missions completely because, you know, much later in her life, she was on the, um, the interview board for her church for screening prospective missionaries. So she, she clearly felt yeah. that that was still something that was worth participating in. Um, but um but uh you know at one point i think she said uh that she was starting to think that, that the purpose of uh mission work was to change missionaries not to change uh the field <laughs> yeah and uh um kind of lose your american idea of religion and and work with the people and be with the people less so what you think they should be Maybe, yeah. I, I think anybody who's interested in kind of what her ultimate view of missions work came to be should get a hold of her novel, No Graven mm -hmm. Image, yeah. uh, and, and read that because that was kind of her, that was her best shot at making the clearest statement that she could make about how she had found the mission field and and how people ought to think about it. So, Yeah, that's, that's, 
that brings brings me to to this question because by the time she so she had three husbands, um, not all the same time. So people are listening do not have three <laughs> three husbands at the same time. Three, um, not one after the other, but people people know what I mean. Um, she she was she married Addison Leach, uh, who's a little bit older than she was. Uh, and she, by this time, she was an internationally recognized speaker. We've you've kind of already kind of breached this this topic. She'd been written written a couple books, um, traveled extensively, cared for her daughter whom she had with Jim. So I I imagine that probably also brought up some stuff for her as well. Her her life seemed to be pulled in every direction. <clears throat> and then Addison Leach died after having been married to him for about the same amount of time as she was married to to Jim. But she responds to ads i mean that's what she called him ads death very differently than she responds to jim's and this one this one really got to her this one really tested her uh, she's almost like again this is this is occurring to me again um and she starts questioning god which i mean we we see her as like valiant for the faith which she was that she she kept the faith her whole life um but she starts questioning um questioning what she's doing questioning why this is happening to her uh, and that she had to keep moving on. So can you talk about, so the time from after Jim's martyrdom through to the end of her marriage with with Addison, kind of what's going on? How does she respond? And where did she go from that? Um, that's a lot to talk about. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so she, um, I mean, kind of to just try to be very brief. So she she was in Ecuador for several years after Jim's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she eventually felt that she that that call to be a missionary was a call to witness to her experience of God yeah. and that, that that she could do that she could fulfill that call best in this stage in her life as a writer and so she moved back to the U.S. Um, and she tried to kind of launch her career as a writer and and also um, you know she was receiving a lot of speaking invitations even though she wasn't really looking for them no. and she felt like she had a a unique opportunity to kind of speak into the church as a she called it an insider outside mm. um somebody who 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 knew kind of what the the usual presentation of missions was but had a different perspective and could yep. challenge it yep um and so she she did that um, for several years, um, and then so she met Addison Leach uh, at one of those speaking engagements. Um, and after his wife died, um, they were engaged and were married, and and they were married just a little longer, um, maybe like yeah. a year longer than yeah. she and Jim had been. Um, and then he got sick and died, um, and. Um, you know, I, you said that her response was very different. And I do think it was very different in that she felt she, I don't think she felt anymore that she had to kind of um, stiffen her upper lip and and make this triumphal response in order to redeem what had happened. Um, I think she felt, you know, she could acknowledge um, his suffering. She could acknowledge her grief and loss. She could acknowledge that God had not answered their prayers um, and that she didn't have an, an answer or an explanation for that. Um, so she was m- much more able to just kind of let the situation be what it was, I think. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I think both times she 
she kind of took her grief to the Lord and she tried to, you know, not dissolve into self-pity. Um, and, uh, you know, her, her slogan, her way that she phrased it was do the next thing. And mm -hmm. so she very intentionally sat down and evaluated, you know, what, what does God have for me here? Um, um, James K. A. Smith in his mm -hmm. book, um, uh, how to inhabit time talks yep. about, he quotes Heidegger and talks about the kind of your being thrown, what's given to you, what's handed yep. to you. And, and then your choice is not, your choice is not that your choice is how are you going to inhabit that and how, what choices can you make within that circumstance that's been given to you. And so she, I think she very um, deliberately tried to sit down and say to herself, okay, this is where I've been thrown. This is where I've landed. What am I going to do here? How can I best serve God and serve other people here? Um, and so she, you know, she, um, she taught Bible classes at <clears throat> church. She taught community Bible classes. She um, hosted um, renters sem at the seminary from the seminary in her home. And she was very deliberate about being involved in their lives and encouraging them to pursue uh, a relationship with the Lord. Um, so, you know, that, that was kind of, that was how it, it influenced her life going forward was that she really looked for what's my, calling within this circumstance even though i wouldn't have chosen the circumstance um and yeah. and how do i how do i fulfill that so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna change the direction of my questions just based off of what i'm hearing um and just what i remember from from the book and it, it's been talked about and i think i think it's it's proper here so she she wrote more than i can think of uh and she spoke everywhere yeah. um maybe yeah taught like like how where, like where did this stuff come from how did like where did all this writing contracts come from what why was she being invited to go everywhere like what generally what what did she speak i know this is i'm, I'm throwing a lot at you but um yeah, she was an international speaker spoke everywhere got tons of requests um and then wrote like nobody's business read like nobody's business maybe talk a little bit about like her speaking and reading and writing life during this time because she's she's well known outside of her marriages she's like she's a force mm -hmm. yeah okay um well so um i mean she yeah she had a lot of speaking requests uh she got to the point where she accepted engagements exactly 18 months ahead of time no more no less if you were in that window you were out of luck oh my gosh she yeah just had no other way to narrow down you know what yeah. she was do um so her you know her schedule her speaking schedule for the year was always set a year ahead yeah um, which is an incredibly regimented uh way to live um yeah. <laughs> so, so she actually saw writing as her primary vocation yeah. and speaking as secondary which is why but, she left ecuador it's, it's more or less she's like i like i feel myself called to write maybe less so to to be a missionary yeah um and and but speaking kind of grew and took over yeah. uh, her life in a lot of ways, I think. Um, but yeah, she would. Um, I mean, I she was very. She she was widely read. She tried yeah. to read on, um, you know, read 
in ways that would inform what she was writing about at any given yeah. time. Yeah. Um, I loved her view on, on Christian art and Christian reading, not just reading Christian books, but Christians who write and who read. I loved some of the stuff that she yeah. talked about with that. Yeah. Um, and, and she thought a lot about that. I mean, she tried to be very intentional about figuring out what it meant to be a good writer and to yeah. do that well. So, but yeah, so she, you know, she did read a lot. Um, she, she, her writing, I mean, I think first was influenced by, um, you know, Harper's was interested in stories about Ecuador. Mm -hmm. And so a good handful of her books were about that. She was also writing um, magazine columns regularly, and those would be compiled into a book. So a lot mm -hmm. of her books that are collections of essays, that's where those came from. <clears throat> and those would be more taken kind of from her daily life. So walking the dog and mm -hmm. uh, looking out her window at the ocean and what was going on in her family and that kind of thing. Um, but also her writing was very much directed um, as time went on by what people were asking, what kind of questions people were asking her, both at speaking engagements in the Q&As afterwards, and also she received just an incredible volume of mail <laughs> I of know, people yeah. writing to ask, you know, treating her like their personal Ann Landers yeah. and ask her for advice about their specific situation. And um, the the volume of interest was just yeah a flood, uh, a tsunami. Yeah, so much so that she had like a stock response that she would send people when it was like kind of on this topic, she would go send this letter off and just sign it instead of just writing this whole thing out. Yeah, eventually she felt like she, you know, she didn't love that, but I think she felt like she had to because there's no other choice. Yeah, keep up with the mail otherwise. Um, yeah, so, um, so I mean, her later books, you know, you mentioned at some point Passion and Purity, that was yep. very much a an attempt to answer all the fan mail in one fell swoop so to speak mm. um so a lot of her later writing was very directed by by what people were interested in um, also her book quest for love which is mm. kind of like a sequel to passion and purity mm -hmm. um, and was one of the last things she wrote um again very driven by public interest so you mentioned her being connected with um kind of purity culture mm -hmm. what's What's very interesting to me about that is that I I think is is teasing out what came first there, the chicken or the egg, because mm. people really grabbed onto those books and kind of used them as a, a a map and a guide in a way that I'm not sure she I don't think mm. she necessarily meant them to be used. Okay. Um, but also she only wrote them because people were already asking her and asking her, and asking uh, her, and asking that makes her sense. about these things. Um, so that interest was there, which sparked the books and then the books kind of fed, you know, so. Sure. Yeah. And so my, my last kind of like quick little question, just an addendum to, to what I last asked before Nick's last, what, who were, cause I know Amy Carmichael, she, I mean, she quotes her everywhere and every time that she possibly yeah. can. Um, but who were some of her big influences and, and how do they influence her both in her writing and her speaking? Um, well, I would say Amy Carmichael was by far. Oh yeah. Number one by a long Far and away beyond everybody else. Uh, I mean, I think she thought in Amy Carmichael quotations for a lot of her life. Yeah. Um, she responded in Amy Carmichael and 
would just like send <laughs> send that off. Yeah. Um, I know she appreciated Lilius Trotter. Um, she really had a, a strong appreciation for George MacDonald mm -hmm. um, and, and found his writing, both fiction and nonfiction, to be really helpful. Um, oh, who else? She loved the J.B. Phillips New Testament specifically. Mm -hmm. yep. um, she lost I, it at one point. Yes, yeah, she lost her, yeah. her copy that she'd had for so long that had all her notes in it, and she never yeah. got back. No, <laughs> she was really bummed out. Yeah, um, those are so George MacDonald is probably the other one who really stands yeah. out as having been. You know, she was reading him for years and years and years, um, and then I mean, she just loved. You know, I mean, she loved Anna Karenina. She mm -hmm. loved. Um, oh. What's J.D. Sollinger's Oh, Catcher in the Rye? Yep. yep. Uh, you know, she she really appreciated um art, good art. Yeah, just fine, art. yeah, fine literature, which was goes back to my comment, like you had just said. She she read extremely widely, extremely voluminously, because she had a big critique of the Christian writing market. Is like they write they write for their people. Right. Um, they don't write well for kind of the broader audience. And she wrote really well which is why I think she was so um, kind of consumed by so many people because people look at her reading list. It's like, are you like, do you really want, want to be reading this stuff? This is, this is not very Christian of you, but she's like, I, I got this. These are the people I want to reach. So I'm going to read the stuff that they, they read. Yeah. She was a big believer in, I mean, I, I think there are two ways to approach that kind of reading and you can, you can assume that if you read things that you disagree with, that you might be converted by them. Yeah. Or you can assume that you can read critically and engage with things and uh, continue, you know, holding your own beliefs. And I think yeah. she was in the, late, the latter camp. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is, yeah, exactly her for sure. Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. You want to make a recurring donations, they're either $15 or $20 a month, or a single donation, you can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all, all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and, and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com, and we can talk through some of the options that we have and we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be, as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. Yeah, there's a lot of people out there that are brilliant writers and you hear them speak and, you know, that you can tell that they're like, oh, well, they're gifted at writing. But no, she <laughs> yeah. is. Yeah. She is an incredibly gifted speaker wow you and you without have... much notes from what i remember from your book oh, she just like yeah. went extemporaneous yep she prepared I... and then it was all here which well, is the only other person i've ever heard who's done that and it, i know she's connected with him is rc Sproul. right the mm -hmm. only other person i've ever known who never brought an outline manuscript nothing and that's the same as elizabeth elliott she just she was bright yeah and she was invited well, invited onto ligonier she had, had the background training. I mean, she was the mm -hmm. Northeast 
uh, region debate champion in college. That's yeah, uh, yep, yep. And so the and I mean she had started she had started training in public speaking in high school, and that mm. continued through college. And she said at one point, uh, it was after Jim had died. Uh, she was back in the U.S. writing for Gates of Splendor, and she had been asked to speak somewhere at the last minute and had accepted. And she said. Oh, okay. dear, I just don't think speaking, I'm not, I'm just not cut out for it. And then, you know, she went <laughs> on to spend the rest of her life <laughs> yeah. speaking. 50 years of public speaking. So, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I, um, if you guys go and find, you can easily find some clips of her speaking and she's incredibly articulate and clear. Yeah. Every time you you know, every time you uh, watch her or something, you're going to learn something new or at least uh, hear something more clear than you ever have before and articulate. Um, you know, just I think her transitions and her pauses uh, are, are yeah. you know, just really just spot very on. Very few verbal ticks. It's yes. just moves from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, very logically, very methodically. Yeah. So you'll know because you will listen to her and you can't stop listening to her you're kind of like sucked in she's a great storyteller and everything she doesn't and have that so cal like like or um or any <laughs> yeah. of those pauses which i had to beat out of my system as yeah. a kid um <clears throat> speaking of that there's some uh some of the my favorite things that i've heard her say you know that when she talks she's had a few lectures where she opens up talking about the definition of suffering I think she says it this way. Suffering is wanting what you don't have and having what you don't want. And I was like, wow, that is very profound. And suffering is never for nothing. She has a whole lecture on that. So I want to throw that in there. But uh, my last question, one of my last questions is talking a little bit more about her faith and views on culture and traditions that kind of adapted throughout her life based on her experiences. And I know, you know, growing up, uh, from a young age, she was in a household that was very Christian. And then shortly after that, when she became married, first marriage, second marriage, tested her faith and trials. And then she was exposed to other cultures and faiths, and she was really perplexed and confused by them. But as time went on, uh, her later years, she um, kind of came to, you know, understand those other other types of uh faiths and cultures is really beautiful and so there was a, a change in her attitude and on that and she joined the episcopal church halfway through our life so going back to the questions just can you talk more about her faith and views on culture and traditions as they matured through her life um yeah i think so so and we talked about how jim's death and kind of the events in the aftermath of that um and, and also the kind of um, interdenominationally ecumenical faith of her parents all kind of formed her thinking. Um, her brother, Tom, was a really strong influence on her thinking. And he mm -hmm. um, entered the Episcopal Church a few years before she did. Um, they were very close and they loved to talk over ideas and share book recommendations back and forth. So he was a big influence. Um, but um, there's a quotation from her book, um, A Slow and Certain Light, Thoughts on the Guidance of God, which where she kind of addresses this. Um, so she says, um, I grew up in a middle-class fundamentalist family in Philadelphia. 
I saw a certain kind of Christianity in operation, and to me, that was what it meant to be a Christian. It took a while for my imagination to go to work to apply that vision to people in other categories. But in the meantime, God met me where I was. When I began to learn of the wideness in his mercy, my faith began to grow, and I saw that salvation was a scheme of infinitely vaster dimensions than I had dreamed. And here I had been worrying about whether I would recognize the voice. Whatever our views, they are probably too narrow. But the wonderful thing is that God is willing to start there. So I, I think that she, you know, she still later in life reached, you know, considered opinions on things she could argue very forcefully uh, mm -hmm. for things that she um, believed. But I think she became much more able to kind of um, to rest in the character of God, to trust the character of God, and to see that as the foundation for our security rather than um, having to get things <clears throat> just right theologically or denominationally or um, or even personally. So. Yeah. Oh, maybe I want to dig in just a hair on this, because um, there's some comments that you that you profile in her journal um, as you as you quote that more towards the beginning ish of the of the biography, where she's like wondering like why are people naked over here? Why are they doing this over here in this tribe? And then like does that this is because she's kind of maybe bringing in some cultural assumptions to another people group that don't share those cultural assumptions. Mm -hmm. Like maybe like how does like that change between. Or or does it change throughout her life where um she she realizes like I'm not the like this is not the only expression of Christian faith. Oh, I mean, I think that I think that there was a a big shift there for her as she lived with the Wairani. Mm -hmm. Um that she, as she her communication was so limited, um, and she had to kind of she had to decide what were the essentials of the faith that were the most important thing to communicate mm -hmm. um, and what could go by the wayside. And, and I think she had a very, um, a, a sense that was maybe ahead of her time in some ways of wanting, really wanting to let all she wanted to bring was Jesus. Mm -hmm. She really wanted to let the Wairani make their own decisions about everything else related to contact. How much more contact with the outside world did they want? Um, what kinds of changes did they want to make? You know, sh she would have liked to see, I think, maybe less cultural change than there was personally, but she mm -hmm. felt like that was not her her call yeah. to make. That was their call to make. Uh, and and her job was to figure out how the words of Jesus by themselves could be communicated. And so to do that, she had to do a lot of thinking about, well, what knee-jerk reactions do I have that are really scripturally founded? And what mm -hmm. knee-jerk reactions do I have that are, that's me, you know, I grew up in a place where we wear clothes or that's, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, and and those things she very consciously set aside. Yeah, which led a, how to do. Yeah, which led I mean, like you talked about, led a little bit to her critique of some American missionary work, where you live kind of in the suburbs and then you go into the area and you you talk to them and bring the gospel, or sometimes you kind of bring the like American expression of the gospel. 
versus kind of what she did, or like not what she did, but it's like she lived in the, with the people. Um, but yeah, she, that's kind of what led a little bit to her her critiques later on, which is we haven't talked about as much. Um, but why a lot of missionary groups were not super fond of some of her ideas on mission work. Um, later on, she got she got disinvited her um contracts were canceled based off of she did not have like, like a glorious view of of what americans are doing missionary wise although interestingly uh it, it tended to be the organizations stateside who were displeased with what she was saying yeah. and the missionaries in the field were much more oh yeah yeah uh, they're like that's exactly right yeah totally yeah. yeah but it was it was kind of the american expression of it they're like oh no we can't say that this is this is this way we do it it's like i I did it for 10 years. I think, I think I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so my final question uh, is kind of a fun one. Uh, based on your research about Elizabeth, uh, you've obviously probably had a lot of fun time re researching her interesting woman. What uh, based on learning more and more about her life, what are some things that have kind of been aha moments or really surprised you? um about her story oh man um i don't know um i don't know that there are that there were aha moments as much as kind of in the big picture um you know she she comes across in her writing and speaking um so collectively um she always sounds very sure uh yeah. and and confident that she's right <laughs> yeah. and um and in you know in reading kind of her more private writing over the course of her life um you know she was those those considered positions took her a lot of time and mm. wrestling and internal mm. uh doubt and hesitance mm. and and prayer and um and sometimes anguish mm. uh to get to um and so she just i mean i think she can come across as this kind of um, I've always held these things and now I'm going to tell you yeah. what I've always held. Yeah. And, and almost cold and hard, yeah. uh, you know, like it or lump it. Which is how a lot of people responded to her most of the time. Um, but I, that, I don't think that's the whole picture. I mean, she, she did hold some positions very strongly and she could be very dogmatic in the way that she presented them. Yeah. Um, uh, However, uh, there was this whole internal life that um, that she kept pretty private, and not very many people were were introduced into. Um, so she, you know, she, she was. It's cliched to say, but she was human. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> yeah. and and you know, you said this is what I've what I hold and what I've always held, uh, and you know, that was very much not the case she yeah. changed her beliefs and her positions on various topics over the course of her life and it wasn't even that she had a consistent arc in one direction you know no. she would start a out at point line. A, yeah. move to point b later go back to point a um and so so that kind of just the complexity and the 
um, the messiness of her life, um, I feel like is one of the big takeaways for me because hmm. I think really that's all of us. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, totally. And, and and the God who is big enough to to hold her messiness is big <laughs> enough to hold our messiness. And you know, she she just by virtue of the fact that she held contradictory positions at different times in her life, sometimes she was wrong, you know. Mm -hmm. And she didn't necessarily know when she was wrong, and we don't necessarily know where she was wrong. But, but God still says that, uh, you know, He's going to work all things together for good uh, for those who love Him. And yeah. uh, her, her big thing in the last years of her life, as you know, her her catchphrase for her radio program was, mm -hmm. "You are loved with an everlasting love." That's mm -hmm. what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And that was her, you know, that was what she based her life on. Yeah. yeah. Based based off of what this is, I I have to add this. I, it's kind of part of one of my questions that I, I struck off. Um, I have to imagine some of this you were like, you saw and read in like her later years, especially married to Lars um, and the difficulty, the difficulty she had in that marriage where she held some stuff very strongly. Um, and so she, like, she kind of had to, she, she not bite her tongue, but she's like, how, like, how tightly do I hold to some of these things? Um, especially with woman submission to man and whatever he says is right, no matter what he says. And I just have to, to, to just go with it. Um, cause she, not to say that their marriage was, was bad, but, um, like, what was it like? like reading some of her stuff when she was married to Lars? Um, I mean, I think any time, at any of the points in her life where, you know, she was doing hard things, um, I mean, I think, you know, it's hard to read uh, somebody suffering. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, I ended up, the year, uh, the, the time period where I was writing the chapter in which uh, Jim is killed, mm -hmm. I ended up just by chance, I was writing the, se the sequence of events leading to his death at the time that it happened. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just a very somber, uh, very moving. I mean, I've read that story now, I don't even know how many times and it's still, uh, you know, uh, it still gets me choked up. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's what, when you think about uh, how hard things were for her, it's very moving. Yeah. Yeah. And if I may add to the, to close this out, you actually uh, answered what I was going to ask too, <clears throat> but I want to hear it again, maybe uh, just parting words. If you know, uh, Elizabeth so well, just from researching her, and she's a mentor of yours. And if, uh, if you could guess what her parting words to us would be based on all her experiences and being a faithful Christian. And I know you said, uh, she kind of closed out in the later years of her life saying you are loved with an everlasting love. Would that be appropriate? Uh, would you would guess her parting words to us would be? Yeah, the the other contender I I would think of would be um, 
what she wrote to her parents and Jim's parents, um, you know, after Jim had been killed and when she was preparing to take her little girl and go in and live with the people who had killed him. Mm -hmm. And she wrote them a letter uh, explaining, you know, what was going on, letting them know, you know, how long it would be between letters to try to help them not worry. And, uh, but she said, you know, basically, uh, you're just going to have to start trusting God for me, uh, not trusting him that I'll live, not trusting him that everything will be okay, just trusting him. And, and I think that was the bedrock of her life, just trusting him regardless of what happened, but she was able to do that because uh, she was loved with an everlasting love. Mm -hmm. so I think the Lord Jesus was the love of her life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that comes very clear throughout the entire biography is, is her, her love driving her through everything and whether it be through anguish, through suffering, through joy, whatever it was, that's, that is, that is I mean, the constant drumbeat. Um, that I think you find throughout this this biography, which um, I said it before the recording, and I'll say it now. It's um, I love the book, and I it's I, I texted Nick at the end of the, at the end of the book. Um, it was the last like page or so. Um, it was one of the very few books that we read for book clubs that like that that kind of got me. That kind of got me a little bit. It was the it was the way that that she left this world um, that got me, uh, and I'm 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 I'm. I would I would state the same for for you and for a lot of people who are going to read this that this is, um yeah she was she was faithful to the end and it was that was hard to read at the end, um but it was it was beautiful so thank you thank you so much for writing this for bringing Elizabeth back to the front I mean I think people know a lot more about Jim yes. rightfully so he's a, he's a martyr for the faith mm -hmm. um, but they know very little about Elizabeth outside of her writing ministry and her her speaking ministry less about her. Um, and her struggles. And so thank you for writing this and bringing all this stuff out. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you for your interest in the book. And I'm so glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this week's book club episode where we spotlight a specific book from a publisher and an author that both Nick and I really enjoy. We don't always agree with everything that the author uh, or the book comes about, but what they do share with us is love for Christ and his gospel from whatever tradition they come from, whatever creedal tradition they come from or confessional tradition. Uh, we all do share the same broader ecumenical Christian faith from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and, and denominations. Uh, we, we hope that these introduce books that you might not have heard of before, authors that you might not have heard of before. Um, I've been uh, really helped by learning about some of these. If you want to go to our show notes, find a link to the publisher. That helps them out a ton. A link to the author's page, to the book, to purchase it from the publisher themselves. It really helps them um, expose their work uh, through the publisher themselves. Yeah, and the value that we're bringing with these book clubs is you guys can really rely on us because as we all know, it takes a lot of time and effort to stay on top of all the books that are coming out and know which ones are probably good to look into, be recommended to read, look out for. And so these uh, these episodes are to whet your palate. You can we have already know that we're going to recommend this book, but you can um, listen to the episode yourself, get a little more understanding of the book and the author and then go from there.
Yeah. So if you want to find these books and uh, and purchase one for yourself, purchase one for friends or family, and also too, if you can find us on Apple, Spotify, any podcast catcher, rate and review us. That's that's how we're that's how we're best known. It's how we kind of make ourselves known. Uh, introduce these to a friend and and maybe just build your bookcase, build your reading, uh, read broader and and read really well. All under the umbrella of our creedal faith under Jesus Christ.